0: Welcome everyone. What a pleasure to see you all here and to need more chairs for a talk about torts. Uh, I would like our guests to know that every one of these students is here utterly voluntarily and that they always wear this much UVA law gear and it has nothing to do with spirit week. Uh, I am delighted to welcome you all today. I want to thank Leslie Kendrick and Rebecca Claff for organizing this event uh, and for everyone who helped make it happen. Um, And I also really want to thank our panelists, Michael Green, John Goldberg, and Kathy Sharkey for joining us today. What an all-star cast we have to talk about this book. We are very fortunate. What a pleasure to celebrate Tort Law and the Construction of Change, co-written by two of the intellectual anchors of UVA Law's faculty, Ken Abraham and Ted White. When we have, oh yeah, this is going to be good. Uh, When we host events like this one, I often remark that writing scholarship can be lonely, uh, and so it's especially nice to be able to celebrate the person uh, who has toiled for a long time by themselves with a communal event. Um, Obviously, in this case, it wasn't quite as lonely uh, because Ken and Ted had each other, and so uh, this is a wonderful way to celebrate our whole intellectual community uh, and also this very special collaboration. I am just going to say a few words, and then I will turn things over to our panel. Uh, So first, I'll introduce Ted and Ken briefly. Ted White is a David and Mary Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law here at UVA. He is an acclaimed legal historian. He has written 20 books, in addition to more than 100 scholarly articles and other pieces. He has taken on topics as singular as the histories of baseball uh, and soccer in the United States, as well as sweeping books, like his definitive three-volume survey, Law in American History. Ted is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, and the Society of American Historians, as well as a member of the American Law Institute. He is a recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, two National Endowment for the Humanities Senior Fellowships, and too many honors and awards to name. Ken Abraham is also a Harrison Distinguished Professor of Law here at the law school. He is one of the nation's leading scholars in tort law and insurance law. A prolific scholar, Ken has also written around 100 law review articles, book chapters, and other essays, as well as his previous six books, which are landmarks in their fields. His insurance law casebook is in its seventh edition. His torts treatise is in its sixth edition. Ken is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences as well, and an honorary fellow of the American College of Coverage Council. He has received many awards, including the All University of Virginia Outstanding Teaching Award, the American Bar Association's Robert B. McKay Law Professor Award, and recognition from the State Council of Higher Education's Robert B. McKay, oh, sorry, I take that back, Higher Education um, uh, Award for Outstanding Achievement in Teaching, Research, and Public Service. Um, As I said, Ken and Ted have been anchors of this faculty for a long time maybe longer than you realize. Um, They have been on this faculty for a combined total of nearly 90 years, Um, both of them spending most of their professional lives here. Um, It has been wonderful to watch their collaboration uh, over the past 10 years or so. They have both taught torts to generations of UVA law students among other things. They have both written about the history of tort law separately and now together. Uh, And I count several, I think seven, I don't know if I'm right about that, co-written articles since 2013 on different aspects of the history of tort law. This remarkable book builds on those articles and transforms them. Uh, It is a really insightful and important book that studies the interaction of law and social change in American history. Um, It has been called timely, lucid, and compelling Uh, And what it tries to do is identify the intellectual and conceptual mechanisms for constructing change in tort law, uh, and in particular, how courts have maintained continuity even as they were constructing that change. The combination of historical, conceptual, and doctrinal uh, that has been a hallmark of both their work throughout their careers uh, is now beautifully brought to us uh, together in this book. So I am thrilled to be able to honor Ken and Ted, uh, this book, and their many years of incredible writing and teaching that preceded it. Before I turn things over to Leslie Kendrick, who is serving as today's moderator, I want to briefly introduce her. Leslie is the Burkett White, the White Burkett Miller Professor of Law and Public Affairs here at UVA. She is also the director of our Center for the First Amendment and our former vice dean. She's a 2006 graduate of this law school. She also holds a, P, a DPhil from Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar, and a BA in Classics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill where she was a Moorhead scholar. Leslie joined the UVA Law faculty in 2008 after clerkships for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson III of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit and Supreme Court Justice David Souter. Leslie's scholarship focuses on freedom of st- speech, torts, uh, and property law. She is the author of numerous scholarly articles and book chapters as well as co-author of the fifth edition of a leading case book tort law, responsibilities, and redress. There's so much more I could say about Leslie, about Ted, about Ken, about this book, and about our terrific panelists, but I know when to stop. So I uh, also know that I will very much enjoy hearing from every member of this panel, and I trust you will as well. Leslie, over to you.
1: It's It's delightful to see such great turnout here, and thank you all for being here. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to moderate this panel today, featuring three distinguished guests and focusing on the book of two distinguished colleagues. Our format for today is that our guests will each offer remarks on the book in turn, and after that we will turn to Professor Abraham and Professor White for responses and for some discussion among the panel. And finally, we'll open the, floors for, the floor for questions and we'll conclude at 5.15. But here at the outset, I'd like to say thank you to Rebecca Claff and to the communications team and the IT team and everyone else here at the law school who made this event happen, thank you very much for all of your work. And I'd like to say a quick word about our two honorees before then dis- uh, introducing our distinguished guests. So Ted, I never got to take a class from you in law school but I knew you as a superstar historian, your reputation uh, preceded you and you've been a superstar colleague for 15 years. Between your work on torts and freedom of speech, your scholarship has informed all of the work I do, and I'm filled with admiration and gratitude to you. Ken, I did take a class with you in law school that turned out to be a life-changing event, a um, seminar on tort theory co-taught by Ken Abraham and Ben Blasi, and you've been my mentor ever since. You got me started in the field of torts, and between your wisdom, your virtuosity, and your generosity, I owe you a greater debt than I can possibly express. So thank you both for being here. I now get to introduce our phenomenal all-star lineup of guests, and I'm gonna introduce them in the order in which they're going to be speaking. Michael Green, is the Mel and Pam Brown Visiting Professor of Law at Washington University School of Law in St. Louis. Professor Green is an expert in torts who has received the ABA's Robert B. McKay Award, the American Association of Law School's William L. Prosser Award, and the John G. Fleming Memorial Prize all for his contributions to the field of torts. Professor Green served as co-reporter for the Restatement Third of Torts, Liability for Physical and Emotional Harm, and for Apportionment of Liability. He's now a co-reporter on the concluding chapter of the third restatement of torts. Professor Green is a member of the European Group on Tort Law, which prepared and published Principles of European Tort Law in 2005. He's a founding member of the World Tort Law Society and past chair of the American Association of Law Schools' section on torts and compensation systems. He's a co-author of a leading torts casebook and of two advanced torts case torts case books. I'm going to go ahead and introduce all three of our panelists here at the outset. So John Goldberg is Carter Professor of General Jurisprudence at Harvard Law School. Professor Goldberg is an expert in tort law, tort theory, and political philosophy. Along with Benjamin Zapersky, he's co-author of the Oxford Introduction to Torts and a recent book on tort theory, Recognizing Wrongs, from Harvard University Press. Professor Goldberg currently serves as associate reporter for the American Law Institute's fourth restatement on property as well as an advisor to the third restatement of torts. He's a member of the editorial boards of the Journal of Tort Law and Legal Theory and is past chair of the Tort and Compensation Systems section of the ALS. After receiving his JD from NYU, Professor Goldberg clerked for Judge Jack Weinstein on the Eastern District of New York and for Justice Byron White of the Supreme Court He's also the co author of a leading torts casebook, on which I am fortunate to be one of his co authors. <laughs> Catherine Sharkey is the Siegel Family Professor of Regulatory Law and Policy at NYU School of Law. She's one of the nation's leading authorities on tort law, business torts, products liability, administrative law, remedies, and class actions. Professor Sharkey is an appointed public member of the Administrative Conference of the United States and a principal advisor on administering by algorithm artificial intelligence in the regulatory state, a project for the office of the chairman. She's an advisor to the American Law Institute's Restatement Third of Tort liabilities, uh, Liability for Economic Harm and the Remedies Projects. She was a 2011-2012 Guggenheim Fellow and has served as the chair of the Tort and Compensation Systems Section for the ALS. She's co-author of the book Foundations of Tort Law and of a Leading Torts Casebook. Professor Sharkey studied economics at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and after receiving her JD from Yale Law School served as a law clerk for Judge Guido Calabresi on the Second Circuit and Justice David Souter on the Supreme Court. Now, part of the reason that I decided to introduce all of them at, at the beginning of this distinguished panel rather than each in turn is I wanted to point out a few similarities in them. Um, All of them are past chairs of the American Association of Law Schools section on Tort and Compensation Systems, which is where I met John and Kathy for the first time. All of them are members of the American Law Institute and are active on tort-related projects there and all are co-authors of leading tort casebooks. You may recognize their names from Epstein and Sharkey, Franklin, Rabin, and Green, or Goldberg, Kendrick, Seabach, and Zapersky. and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that every single tort student in this room is learning torts from one of the people (laughs) on this panel, and indeed that every law student at UVA Law is learning torts from one of the people on this panel. So I'm thrilled and honored to see everyone here, students and casebook authors getting to meet each other and for all of us to be here to celebrate Ken and Ted's book. So Professor Green.
2: So uh, thank you, Leslie. Uh, That's an invitation that only my mother would appreciate. Um, And I'd like to say thank you to Leslie and to Rebecca for about as well-organized and planned a symposium as I've ever attended. This has just been—couldn't have asked for better um, administration. Um, I should tell you a little bit about how I got here. I, I don't remember when we had this conversation, but Leslie called me, and she said, Mike, we're gonna have this uh, celebration of Ted and, and Ken's book, and I've got two really good people who are coming, John and Kathy, who I, who I obviously knew. And she said, I'm looking for, this is a late afternoon, students are tired, I need a scintillating, entertaining, really smart, Person who can step into history as well, and I sat back for a minute on the phone and I thought, should I tell the truth? <laughs> and I decided to. I said, "Oh, Leslie, I think there's at least two or three other people that can better serve what your needs are." She didn't miss a beat. She said, Mike, two or three? There's a dozen, but every one of them has turned me down. <laughs> so, with my humility reinforced, something that law faculty are not very well known for, I come here to talk about this book. I, I'm really grateful to Ken and to Ted for writing this book. And they and look at tort law from outside tort law's skin. They they step outside of it and 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 look at it structurally. Um, I've never operated outside that skin. I've spent my career inside of tort law, looking at doctrinal stuff and causation and coherency. But I've never taken the step out that you guys had me do, and, and I'm grateful for that that opportunity. Um, you shoved my face in the sort of lack of structural coherence to a subject that I've um, been doing since the early 1980s. Um, I'm also grateful that by uh, focusing on structure, I think you've sidestepped the need for John and Kathy and I to put on boxing gloves and to argue about the theory that explains tort law. I don't think we're going to need to get into that. I'm gonna proceed and just talk about comments about each of the chapters uh, in order. Um, as I read the introduction to your book, I thought it immediately got me to can um, the form and function of tort law where you explain these subjects that I'm trying to teach to my, to my students. Um, and, I, and it struck me that you should really import into the seventh edition of form and function when you, when you write that, some of what you talk about about precedent and how tort law, uh, how law changes. I, that's something my student I try and teach to my students, and you seem to explain to my students better than I do what I want them to learn. Um, one thing that struck me in the introductory chapter, and, and actually throughout, uh, the role of the jury in influencing the shape of tort law. Uh, more precisely the role of judicial attitudes about juries and the way in which those attitudes affect what substantive tort law is. Uh, New New York Times versus Sullivan, which um, Ted and, and Ken address in, I think it was chapter four, fairly reeks when you read the opinion of the concern by a court about a Southern jury Making determinations about a liberal Northeastern newspaper and what it said about the controversy that didn't say much about the controversy there. Another example, I think, is um, in strict products liability. We we toyed for a while with the idea that we should judge um, design defects with a consumer expectations test. And and that was actually what was in Section 402A, the famous strict products liability section. That was in the second restatement of torts. And and courts have largely um, put that aside. They've they've gone on. And I think the reason they've done that is because consumer expectations, particularly with regard to how safe products should be, um, was too open-ended. And it gave juries too much discretion, and it was discomfort with that that led to us uh, moving toward a risk-benefit test. And yet, if you go to Europe, which adopted much of what was in Section 402A, including consumer expectations, consumer expectations remains the rule for judging product defects. My explanation is because in Europe, there's no civil jury, and it is judges with whom we have more comfort making those kinds of determinations. Those are examples of where I think uh, juries have affected the scope and substance of of tort law. Um, In in Chapter 1, I learned something I really didn't know, and that was the reformation of uh, who was qualified to testify um, as an an expert, It struck me as I was reading, as a witness, not as an expert, it struck me in in reading that chapter that we actually have a large slug of cases, tort cases today, in which the injured party doesn't testify, and that's wrongful death cases. In wrongful death cases, the injured party is dead and doesn't testify, at least on Earth. Um, and And it struck me, I wonder if what you describe about the cases that ended up being brought, or more importantly, not being brought, has any currency in today's wrongful death cases. They have always struck me as simply tort cases. Um, But maybe because of what you identify, there may be differences. Now, we've got um, a different world today. We have technology, and that may make up for not having injured party testimony, but I'd be interested in your thoughts um, about that. Um, I found your statement about the state of tort law after uh, Francis Bolin. F- Francis Boland was the reporter for the ALI when it first um, did a restatement of tort. So there have been three restatements of torts. Francis Boland was responsible for the first one, uh, mostly responsible for the first one. William Prosser was mostly responsible for the second one. And it is a cast of characters (laughs) responsible for the third one. There are about, I don't know, how many are there, John? Ten, twelve? Too many. Uh, There's a lot of people involved in third reason. But Boland sort of took this on, and it, it was an unruly beast when he took it on. And, and you say what it started out as a new conceptual scheme which Bolin tried to impose on this unruly beast that had just emerged in, well, 30 or 40 years. Um, uh, as an or- that he tried to provide an organization that was more modern than that developed by previous scholars, but, not, but it was not much more coherent or cohesive. He's gotten a lot of credit for trying to tame this unruly beast. Um, uh, Ted and Ken explain why he really didn't get quite as far as we might have hoped that he would. But I think they probably say, well, yes, but that was the nature of the beast. And, and that made me wonder um, about other subjects. Are, are there other subjects that have the structural coherency that you well identify as being messing from torts, um, or are other subjects similarly a structural mess? Um, And one area that I know fairly well, because I used to teach it is civil procedure, and it it strikes me that civil procedure is really not this coherent thing. I mean, it's a a agglomeration of a lot of different aspects from jurisdiction to discovery to um, uh, judgments as a matter of law, that really doesn't hang together. Uh, antitrust just to ruminate, I think antitrust does have that coherency because it's largely right about consumer welfare and and it, that structures it, that holds it together, although sometimes we're worried about whether just being too big is a problem that we need to be concerned about. Um, The question of structural uh, principle uh, takes me back to when the American Law Institute, and now I'm talking about chapter two, which is really, st- was the, the, the chapter that I was most grabbed by because it has to do with work that I have done over my career and, and continue to do. Um, and it made me think back to a meeting in the early 90s Ken, were you at that meeting, the one post-products liability where the ALI was trying to figure out what to do next? Um, uh, The question then was after the institute decided to do a project on products liability, that would be the first piece of what is the third restatement of torts. um, Somebody suggested that the next project should be one of general principles, general tort principles. Um, I was skeptical at the time, as I imagine you would have been, Ken, and and Ted, had you been there, that you would have been as well, um, because tort law isn't really made up of general principles. It's made up of bricks. Um, It's made up of things like res ipsa loquitur and the emergency doctrine. And general principles just didn't make sense. Despite that, the next project was named General Principles. And it went on for a while, um, and guess what happened? It got renamed. Uh, It became liability for physical and emotional harm. And and in the process, dealt with those bricks that make up a maybe-not-you-want-to-live-in edifice that we call uh, tort law. Um, I I don't want to leave the topic, though, without acknowledging that there are two, maybe three central principles in tort law. I don't know that they're general principles, but there's three central principles to tort law. Um, Tort law is about recovering for harm and any tort that has harm to it, and almost all of them do, we need a concept of factual cause. Can't do it without an idea about what constitutes factual cause. Similarly, I think, um, unless we're prepared to hold Eve responsible for all the evils of today, we need to have a limitation um, called scope of liability or proximate cause, on how far a tortfeasor's liability can go. And I wanna suggest those are common to every tort. I'll I'll go out on a limb here and say every tort we need to use scope of liability and factual cause. And we also need, if we're gonna provide compensation for harm, we need to identify legally cognizable harm. What Leslie said to me in that phone conversation is not harm that I could sue her for, right? Uh, law would n- not recognize that pride that got hit when Leslie said that to me. Um, that's a nice segue into the third point that I want to make, which is to take issue. Um, I'm going to take issue with, with you two honorees. Um, and you said in, the, in Chapter 3 that A third restatement is a collection of independent modules, because that is much of what tort law is. They are atomistic and can proceed separately and independently. Well, um, no. Uh, Products liability proceeded, but what it didn't have was what was going to come later with factual cause and, and scope of liability, had to go back to the second restatement and incorporate that um, into it. Uh, the lines between substantive uh, projects and remedies, for example, um, uh, is does wrongful birth and pregnancy belong in, reveni- in remedies or does it belong in liability for physical and emotional harm or concluding provisions? Uh, medical malpractice is about to become its own project. Um, it is now confronting how to get cause and fact and, and scope of liability into it. And as we were walking here, um, John Goldberg who is doing restating property torts and I were talking about where a subject that I had thought he was going to do is now, may now be up for grabs as to where it's going to fit. So the projects are not nearly as atomistic as, they're not that atomistic. There's quite a lot of overlap, and one of the things that the reporters of current projects are doing is consulting with each other about where different things will get covered. Um, On Chapter 3, I suspect the timing was such that um, you guys could not, incorporate Steve Sugarman's article on the dignitary torts. Steve makes a fairly heroic case that a wide swath of dignitary torts from assault to offensive battery to privacy and defamation. Okay. I'm getting my timing down. Thank you, Leslie. Um, that, that, that those actually have a great deal great deal more in common with each other, and that indeed, and this is what's interesting, is that their separate development, they developed at different times, uh, obscured the commonality that they have. Um, He makes a a great case. I don't know if he persuaded me. I'd be interested when we have comments about about your view about that. Um, um, In chapter four, I hope we'll have time, Uh, in talking about intangible claims that may arise is uh, Dove Fox's work on on reproductive freedom and the idea that reproductive freedom is an interest um, and harms to it are ones that the law should recognize, right? Interfering with reproductive uh, freedom. This would include losing an embryo, which right now is treated as property, although maybe in some states it's, it's a living person, um, that uh, losing an embryo would be an offense to this interest in reproductive uh, freedom. Genetics counseling, that is inaccurate or incorrect. A botched sterilization procedure, these would all be common in interfering with this um, freedom of reproductive rights That. Uh, Dove has been writing about for a while. Your, whether this will be one of the new intangible torts is what I'm thinking would be an interesting thing to talk about. Um, and, and another subject, if I can, why do certain tort claims die off? We've seen a number of tort claims in the last 50 years. Alienation of affections, criminal conversation, um, strict liability for product warnings and design defects that have sort of gone by the boards. I think a torts uh, medical examiner would find different causes of death in all those cases, but it's interesting to think about why we lose lose cases. Um, I do think, and I want to I want to suggest that you guys say in the book that there hasn't been a new tort recognized in the last 50 years. And as somebody who's been charged with restating new torts, uh, I think we have had new ones. Uh, We have medical monitoring, for example. We have spoliation of evidence. Um, We have the wrongful birth and wrongful life, at least we sort of recognize those as, as new torts. Uh, we have had um, torts born in the last 50 years um, that are around today. Um, I f- want to end up by talking about prima facie tort, which takes a lot of chapter five. Um, the, the intentional torts restatement has a section on purposeful, uh, purposefully harming uh, another in their bodily integrity. I want to suggest that that really is the prima facie tort when it comes to personal injury. The big place where prima facie tort has played a role is with regard to economic harm. And... Um, Ward didn't dismiss it in intentional, in economic harm, he basically ignored it, which means that um, prima facie tort causing economic harm falls to the project that I'm currently working on, concluding provisions. And I hope we will have a chance again during discussion to talk about what it makes sense for the third restatement to do with regard to that prima facie tort? Should should the ALI disavow it? Um, Should the ALI bring it forward in the way that it is in the second restatement? Or should we say, well, uh, we're doing neither of those, but we're recognizing that some courts in some unusual circumstances may wanna use it and and leave it at that. I'd love to hear a discussion of that. Um, Thank you, Ted, and thank you, Ken, for taking me outside Tort Law's skin and making me think about a subject I had done very little thinking about in the past.
3: Okay, great, thank you. Um, Thanks uh, uh, to Dean Galboff, to uh, Rebecca Claff, to all of you for coming out and listening, and I hope asking questions if there's time, and especially thanks to Leslie Kendrick for uh, organizing us and putting this great panel together. Uh, And of course, congratulations to our honorees. uh, I'm uh, particularly honored to be here on this occasion uh, for personal reasons. Um, I've mentioned this in other contexts, but I want to mention it here. Um, uh, I've now been a law professor for far too long, um, but there was a time when I wasn't a law professor. Um, and when I first got going, um, it's, it's rough sledding in some ways. I'm not complaining, life is good, uh, but uh, it's hard finding a job, and it's hard getting your, uh, your feet under you as a scholar, and Anyone who starts in this business needs uh, mentors and people who will help them and guide them and move them forward in good directions. And I want to say publicly that both Ken and Ted played that role for me even though I was not their colleague um, and went out of their way to help me and help my scholarship. And I owe them uh, a great debt of gratitude and I hope to carry forward what they did for me to other people. So thank you both. Okay, so now let's talk about the book, and you might have thought, well, at this point, the love fest is over, and the knives are coming out. Um, Well, that just means you haven't read the book, um, or at least not closely, why is that? Well, if you read the book, you would know I am actually compelled uh, to say that this is a great book. Why am I compelled? Well, if you go to page IX, nine, right? IX, uh, uh, there's a claim there that I am responsible for this book existing. Um, so I have to like it, right? Uh, uh, they thank me for that. I'm not sure I deserve those thanks, but thank you. Um, and then uh, if you go all the way to the end of the book and flip it over and look at the back, I've written a very nice blurb on the back of the book. So I'm, I'm pretty much stuck here. Um, I can only say uh, nice things. And uh, I'm more than happy to because it turns out the nice things in this case are true. Um, this is a wonderful book. I encourage you to read it. Um, It is meticulously researched, it is historically rich, it is doctrinally lucid, and it is sociologically wise. Um, uh, Anyone who reads it will just learn a lot, and uh, among the things you'll learn at a most general level um, is an important set of lessons, as I think Mike's comments alluded to, about historical contingency. Uh, and the fact that much of what we teach and learn uh, in our torts classes uh, and take for granted didn't have to be this way uh, and in fact wasn't this way for a long time and could easily tomorrow be different. Uh, That's a really important lesson for lawyers. Um, uh, History looms especially large in our profession um, and those who do not understand the history of the law are doomed to not understand uh, the law. At the same time, the book manages somehow to convey that amidst all the contingencies and historical change, there has been extraordinary continuity, and there really has. Let's put it this way, right? If you saw the worst Bill and Ted's excellent adventure movie ever, in which they travel back to 15th century England to talk to a bunch of common lawyers, um, it would turn out that they'd actually have a lot to talk about. Um, if you talked about battery or false imprisonment or trespass to land to a bunch of lawyers, from, English lawyers from the 15th century, they'd know what you're talking about. Um, and it's kind of astonishing, given how little of our world they would understand, that they would understand that. So there is this extraordinary combination of contingency on the one hand and continuity on the other, and their book just captures beautifully how law is both of those things uh, at the same time. All right, in my remaining few minutes, I'm going to focus on what I take to be two of the main or larger claims of the book, um, and uh, try to explain them a bit, um, uh, and then maybe ask a couple of questions about them. So the first uh, of these two larger claims goes something like this, and again, Mike alluded to it. Tort law is a mess, and it is destined to be a mess, at least as long as it is primarily judge-made law. Um, So, what does that mean? Well, for you students, good news and bad news. Uh, The bad news is the book isn't gonna clear things up um, because the whole point is it's a mess. Um, The good news is you're in great company if you think tort law is a mess, so so these two titans think so as well, so uh, feel better about yourselves. Um, uh, Now, uh, the claim that tort law is a big mess comes across in several chapters that uh, discuss failed attempts to impose order on the field. Most on point is chapter two, which describes the ongoing struggle of scholars to quote unquote conceptualize tort law. Uh, the same idea is lurking in chapter three's discussion of the failure to, of the idea of dignitary torts to take hold as a kind of distinct class uh, of torts. Um, okay, um, so what in what sense exactly is tort law a mess? And here I think we need to do some unpacking. Uh, The core idea, I think, is that no one has ever identified a master organizing concept for the field. Uh, And to answer Mike's question that he asked a moment ago, uh, this is in contrast to other fields of law. So on page 75 of the book, in in passing at least, Ken and Ted mention other fields that, from their perspective, seem to be less messy, uh, less of a mess. And they mention both property uh, and contract. Uh, So, you know, let's talk about contract, which maybe some of you know something about. Um, uh, In contract, they say there's an organizing concept. The organizing concept is roughly promises, right? Contract law enforces a subset of the promises that we make each other, so contract is a law of promising. There's no equivalent statement you can make about tort. Tort law is a law of blanking, can't come up with it, okay? Ken and Ted sometimes flirt with the idea that tort law was destined to be a mess because it's based on the old English writ system and I won't bore you with the old English writ system but uh, I think they can't maintain this position. Um, Why not? Well, because of course contract law and property law also come out of the writ system and according to Ken and Ted, they are not a mess or is not as much of a mess. Indeed, I would suggest that contract law, are you ready ready for this, came out of tort law. Breach of contract is a tort, or at least it was understood as a tort a while back and it kind of hived off and became its own sort of special tort. The special tort of, if you want, breaching a promise so as to injure another. So take that, contracts, professors. Um, uh, So I don't think it's the history here that dooms tort law to messiness. Um, I think it's something else, and I think they say it in the book. What dooms tort law to messiness uh, is something like this. There's just a zillion ways to mistreat each other. Humans are geniuses when it comes to figuring out ways of wrongfully injuring each other. Nobody can come up with a complete list of that because it's one of our uncanny abilities as human beings to find new and exciting ways to mistreat each other. Um, and if you're gonna be a field of law that's all about people mistreating other people, you're never gonna be able to come up with a final catalog or a general description of that. I think that's their basic claim and I think it's quite plausible and I, there's a lot with, it, uh, with which I agree there. Um, I would suggest that the, the word mess perhaps carries too much of a negative uh, connotation um, uh, uh, why do I say that? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, I'm pretty sure, and I think Mike alluded to this, that if we spent some time with contract property, etc., we'd find equivalent messes. Um, uh, last time I looked at contracts, which admittedly was you know, before the invention of the telephone, Um, uh, There was some fight going on between promises and detrimental reliance and stuff like that and which was more basic and fundamental to the field, so that's just a taste of why I'm not convinced that tort is doing so much worse on the score of coherence than these other uh, fields. Um, And I'll go even further and now sadly, Mike, we are getting into tort theory, I apologize. Um, Tort law uh, actually can be organized and indeed is organized around an idea or a set of ideas. It's just those ideas are relatively abstract or general. Right? The idea is roughly, uh, and I'm on record saying this, so no one who knows me will be surprised to hear this, um, tort law is all about wrongfully inflicted injuries that the law recognizes as such, and uh, gives victims of wrongs the opportunity to use the courts to obtain redress from the wrongdoer. Now that's a mouthful, uh, I grant, and it's very vague, I grant, but it's not empty, um, it's not meaningless, and it does organize the field. Um, so, what do I mean by that? How does it organize the field? Well, torts are wrongs. That's what the word means. Look it up, right? A tort is a wrong, right? That matters. Um, what does it matter, why does it matter? Well, there's lots of liability in the world that has nothing to do with wrongs, right? So when you pay your taxes, as of course all you, you all should, you're not being made to pay because you've done something wrong. You're being made to pay because there's a rule out there which says, you, as a earning who earn, future you who's earning income, uh, uh, will uh, are required to pay taxes. Right? That's, you didn't do anything wrong by earning money. I mean, yes, we can get into theories of distributive justice, but let's not. Um, uh, nothing wrong there. You just have to pay. All right. So torts are wrongs, and they're civil wrongs. They're not criminal wrongs. You don't go to jail when you commit a tort. Right? Oh, and they're injurious wrongs. No torts without injuries or harms. There's no attempted torts as we're reminded by this book. You can't get in trouble for trying to hurt someone in tort law, you can only get in trouble for actually hurting someone. Okay? All of these things are important substantive things about, to say about tort law and all of them help organize the field at a certain level of generality. Tort law is not contract law, it's not criminal law, it's not tax law, it's not all these other things. Okay. Finally, in their eagerness to deem tort law a mess, uh, Ken and Ted sometimes, not always, sometimes partake of uh, what I will call, with all due respect to them and to others, a kind of pathology that afflicts many torts professors. Um, uh, and the pathology is they seem really proud of tort law being a huge mess. It's almost like a badge of honor. We teach and write in the field that makes no sense. Um, uh, now. Um, uh, this might seem a puzzling way for scholars to approach their chosen subject, um, but I think torts professors do this for a reason, um, and for some good reasons, actually. One reason is they like to emphasize rightly that tort law is, if you will, bottom-down up rather than top-down law. It comes up from individual cases, judges deciding individual disputes, trying to figure out whether this behavior under this circumstance was wrong, Um, and that's not uh, grand theory. Uh, We have some good friends uh, north of the border in Toronto who will tell you that if you just read Immanuel Kant's work, closely enough, you will be able to extract tort law from it, I kid you not. Um, Not my view, not the view of any people on this panel. Um, Tort law is the opposite. Tort law is judges deciding individual cases, all true. And cases are very fact intensive, as you're surely learning. Change the facts just a little bit, and what goes from being not a tort becomes a tort. Right? So all true, none of this, I would suggest, true stuff, Um, uh, establishes that tort law uh, is a mess. There is a there there. Um, uh, It's just not, uh, those who love to emphasize its messiness I think have an overblown notion of what it means for there to be a there there. Okay. Uh, One, so question, and then I'll move on to the last topic and then I'll be done. Uh, Question for our esteemed authors. What would tort law look like if it were not a mess? Imagine a legislative overhaul of the common law of tort. What would that look like? Would we be looking at an equivalent to the general part of the model penal code where they've got act and mens rea and consequence and it's all laid out nicely and analytically and gives you the sort of elements of each crime. But even the model penal code then goes on to list each of the crimes, the major crimes, murder, arson, blah, well gee, that sounds a lot like tort. Nobody thinks criminal law is a mess. Everyone thinks it's evil, um, but nobody thinks it's a mess. Um, uh, uh, Why is tort law a mess, or what would the non-messy version of tort law look like? All right, Now, that's all on the first claim, that tort law is kind of a mess. Second claim that the book makes, which I think is really interesting, and it goes something like this. Human history is a record of change. Uh, but in law, or at least judge-made law, change is filtered or funneled through prevailing legal categories. This means that the influence of all these changes that are constantly going on around us, technology, morals, other dimensions of human existence, always have to be refracted through the lens of tort law. Um, And more specifically what that means is that typically, if courts are going to recognize a new claim, or a claim uh, that doesn't look quite like any other claim, they're typically gonna have to stuff it into an existing tort. So a plaintiff comes along and says, I've been injured in this new way um, uh, that doesn't quite fit anything that's on the books. Uh, it's gonna be the plaintiff's lawyer's job to say, oh no, it's really, what, battery. You know, it's just another version of battery, or negligence, or whatever. Occasionally, If you're lucky, as a claimant, you can come in and convince a a court to recognize an entirely new tort, intentional infliction of emotional distress or invasion of privacy in the 20th century. But that's hard to do. And Ken uh, and Ted, I think, explain uh, why. Courts uh, in the common law tradition are nervous about that level of innovation. Often they'll say things like, if you want a new tort, go to the legislature. Um, Not saying they should say that, but they often do say that. Um, uh, and um, I think it's also because when courts, if they're gonna recognize a new tort, what they're looking for is that it's really a, get ready for it, a tort. Well, that presupposes we have some notion of what a tort is, right? So when courts said, you know what, we should have a new court tort called IIED, Intentional Infliction of Emotional Distress, it kind of looks like battery, and it kind of looks like defamation, and it kind of looks like assault, but it's none of those exactly. But it's close enough because there's wrongful conduct causing injury uh, to a victim, and this seems like a plausible candidate for the victim to be able to obtain redress from the wrongdoer, so we're going to create a new tort called intentional infliction of emotional distress. That wasn't legislative, that wasn't out of whole cloth, that was teasing out a new tort from the old torts. And that's because why? Because we have a conception of tort, right? Of what a tort is. Okay. Um, So I think they're actually uh, uh, less convinced. The second part of their uh, book, if you will, pushes against the first part. I don't think they think tort is is as much of a mess as they say. I think they're on the non-mess team with me, um, which is where one should be. Um, uh, uh, But regardless of whether I'm right about that, Um, uh, I want to say that this is just a fantastic book uh, uh, and you really should read it. You'll learn tons from it. It'll help you think uh, and give you a perspective on what you're learning in class. So uh, congratulations, Ted and Kit.
4: It's uh, fantastic to be here as part of this this celebration. I have three points I want to make. The first is going to be some praise. There's a lot that's praiseworthy in the book. The second is going to be a quibble. And the third is going to be a thought about the future. So first for the praise, um, I'm going to be very specific. Um, I've been teaching torts for a long time. I actually was this idiosyncratic law student who went to law school for torts. Imagine that, that's like, I might be in an N of one. Um, And I have, um, it's very rare, I read a lot of tort articles, I read a lot of good tort books, but it's very rare that someone has put forward kind of an image or a metaphor that so sticks and that I find deploying when I'm teaching torts, I find in conversation, including at dinner, you know, it's an idiosyncratic family too where we talk about lots of tort-related <laughs> concepts and how they relate to life. So if you have, I don't wanna sort of um, ruin the surprise, but the praise is gonna be for this notion of cloaking that they introduce, and cloaking is their metaphor for what John described as their thesis about, um, about the idea of, how um, courts sort of try to merge continuity and change. And specifically, they describe cloaking as this legal convention about how to construct, explain, and justify change. And more specifically, they give some examples about how the availability of precedent gives this tool for this deployment of cloaking. And um, so just first a personal note, I, I recognize I can be, um, you know, I can get excited about things in tort, including new metaphors. And at the time I happened to be reading this book. It was my vacation book. Yes, I've, I've, I've already shared a lot about, about my life, but I read, um, I read this on one of the greatest vacations of my life actually this past summer. And while I was reading about cloaking, I was, and this is a true story, I was in Etretat in France, and we were visiting, I was in the garden um, of this home, we were visiting the home of Maurice Leblanc, who is the creator of the gentleman thief detective Arsène Lupin, some of you, maybe, you know, this is where I get to seem cool. There's like a Netflix Omar Sy, Lupin series that many people have seen. And I was thinking about this, and now every time I think about cloaking, because inside this home that I don't think anyone visits, but it's really funny because they have an audio that lasts about six hours, so even I couldn't stay that long, and the person pretends he's. Um, he's Arsène Lupin, but they have lots of cloaks and top hats. And and, um, so this imagery, it's almost like this Proustian, you know, Madeleine that uh, takes me back um, to a very, very happy time in my life. But the serious point is, I mean it when I say, um, I see this now, and I realize in class in particular that I was using a lot of words in probably um, not an effective way to communicate the idea to students. So I'll give you one scintillating example that's not in their book, but I think they might see this as a good example. I teach this case um, when we get to talking about conversion, and you'll know conversion right is this um, tort, where you're um, acting antithetical to someone else's ownership interest in something. But there's a very interesting case called Kremen versus Cohen that's all about can something intangible, in this case a domain name, and to make it racier, the domain name isn't any domain name, it's sex.com. And it turns out someone had registered, this was back in the day when you registered, um, but you got these, they were free for the grabbing. Someone had taken this and someone else purloined it and the rest was history. But the, the purpose that for, for here is is that in that case, um, I teach it in class. um, It's a 2003 case, I think. I teach it next to Moore versus Regents of California, which is the case also about conversion, about the the individual whose spleen was being exploited because it was commercially viable. And the California Supreme Court in that case is like, we don't know what to do in this new area of biotechnology and human body parts. And if we were to go forward and expand conversion liability, it would lead to all these disastrous consequences and there's no precedent to do that. So we raise this red flag of caution. And when I show students, by the way, the punchline in Kremen versus Cohen is the court's gonna go forward and recognize, right, this expansion of conversion liability in a brand new sphere of internet domain names, et cetera, I ask my students things like, you know, are we going to see is the gestalt, I think I've used that word, or like the reasoning of the court, are they going to kind of say we're breaking new ground, we're going for it for these policy reasons? No. What do they do? They cloak. And I never knew how to explain it that succinctly, but they cite more which by the way, didn't recognize a tort in the same new area, but they talk about how when there's not precedent, you know, you go cautiously, et cetera, and they do all the things that that this book talks about is sort of ubiquitous in tort law, and I think it's a fascinating project. I've actually started asking some of my students um, to to be on the lookout for sort of these, these explicit examples where it's very, very clear that a court is breaking very new ground And they're even citing precedents, you know, where the court decided in an area of lack of precedent not to go there, and how it is that they're reasoning. So I'm very, um, I think it's a very powerful, not only, you know, vivid metaphor, but it's a kind of useful construct, and um, it's also, um, to use, actually this is a phrase, uh, Ted, I found in, um, I haven't met you before today, but I've read lots of your work, and I think it was when you were describing trainer, you used these words of irresistible simplicity, and I find this cloaking idea, or this idea that, um, that courts are gonna, of course, be um, faced with external pressure, and they're gonna refract that, in their doctrinal structures. It seems like a very simplistic notion, but once it's been written about and you have it before you, I think you can find it in very, very nuanced um, places. So now my quibble. So this harmonious world in which courts um, are reacting to external pressures and refracting it within existing doctrinal structures, I think um, doesn't exist in one of the places that they try to force into that frame. And that would be in the constitutionalization of tort law. So in the book they talk about it. Um, Mike alluded to this briefly before in terms of New York Times versus Sullivan constitutionalizing defamation law. They advert very briefly to Snyder versus Phelps and the constitutionalization in in IIED and and privacy. And um, it's kind of unfortunate, it would be great to tell this story. Not only, I'll get to a minute, John's be on his, be on a non-messy team, but don't join his team. Or just hold, hold out before you decide to join his team. But, um, but uh, in thinking through um, this kind of um, harmonious structure, to me, it seems like instead... Um, The U.S. Supreme Court in some of its areas of constitutionalizing tort law has actually been an assault on the common law and has stymied and done some bad things to the common law. And it's secondly been a really pretty frontal aggressive attack on the jury. So Mike mentioned the jury. The book doesn't talk a whole lot about juries. There's some passing references um, to juries. But I would argue, and I'm just going to give you sort of some quick, highlights. Um, This is some language from Snyder versus Phelps, where they're discussing the great tort of IIED, they say outrageousness, you all know your tort students, I don't know if you've studied IIED, but one of the things the restatement says, we know what the um, standard for intentional infliction of emotional distress is, I would start saying something very Awful and offensive, and you would all stand up and shout in unison. Outrageous, so we won't we won't do this experiment. But it's a very high threshold, extreme and outrageous conduct outside the bounds of all civilized uh, society. Tort scholars, if you've ever looked in this area, you could go meticulously across different state jurisdictions. There's some variation, but it's a very very high threshold. Very few claims get through because the common law has developed with a very strong appreciation that they're in the world of speech torts and that there are free speech interests. In the same way in defamation, and this is alluded to in the book, so I'm not making unfair criticism, but the common law of torts was doing quite well in defamation, it's not like free speech just came upon it in New York Times versus Sullivan. There were all sorts of privileges, the entire structure of how that tort evolved is about sort of weighing the balances of tort and free speech interests. But in any event, this is what the US Supreme Court has to say, outrageousness is a highly malleable standard with inherent subjectiveness and a jury can impose liability based on its tastes or views. Like this is a court, that's Chief Justice Roberts, but I've looked at this in a lot of different areas, even outside of the speech torts areas. You don't have to go that far. Look at punitive damages, look at the constitutionalization of that field that started in BMW versus Gore and then a whole trilogy of cases where the court is just um, outraged. It's jars the justices constitutional sensibilities that juries could award verdicts you know, of that size. Final area, look at all of the US Supreme Court cases in federal preemption of state tort law, it's really not um, kind of giving some guidance or advice that then the lower courts can kind of incorporate into their into their structure. They say things, this is from a dissent in a case about drug warnings, who the FDA or a jury in Vermont should decide about jury labels? And you can imagine the conservative majority that then emerges in the medical device uh, area comes back and basically has kind of a disdain for juries deciding Um, product cases that have to do with medical devices or um, drugs. Um, I've argued, for example, this gets us a little bit into administrative law. This is a court that probably it's not a surprise to any of you has been Really critical of the behemoth administrative state and seems to be going out of its way to reconstr- reconfigure administrative law as we know, disdainful of agencies. I've argued, and I think I have a lot of evidence of this, that even though they have this caustic criticism of the ever-inflating administrative state, it pales in comparison <laughs> to their disdain towards the common law of torts. And in fact, in areas they will, in areas where they are sort of forced to choose, they will bite their tongues and kind of give a lot of deference to something the FDA or an agency has done if it's gonna get rid of the common law tort premise, just oust it entirely. And so I'm a little, you know, that's my quibble. it doesn't surprise, it's not gonna surprise anyone. I've written an article in the punitive damages space called Federal Incursions and State Defiance. So states don't actually always just sit back and kind of you know, incorporate and refract on their existing doctrine when it comes to these kinds of external threats. So I think that that's a kind of caveat to the thesis and, um, and that's my little quibble. Okay, for the future, um, for tort law, and this kind of comes back to um, John was, as usual, extremely eloquent. Fear not, I save my boxing gloves to go one-on-one with John. You know, they're back at the, you know, hotel. This won't be, to give just a a footnote on that, because it's not the, um, the subject here, John wrote this wonderful book, Recognizing Wrongs, and I wrote a review called um, modern tort theory preventing harm, not recognizing wrongs. We disagree about what the kind of coherent organizing principle of tort law is. I would agree with John, you know, in a kind of 19th century view of tort law. I would vehemently disagree in a 21st century modern tort view. Just for the, just to make sure there's we're we're clear on that. But for the future of tort law in connection with this book, two points to make. So first, I found it very intriguing. Um, The book talks a lot about external pressure for new torts. And um, at places, it is true that they are pluralistic in the sense that John could find and selectively quote things here that would um, talk about birth of tort or pushing tort forward on the frontier in terms of morality or wrongs, as he said many times in his uh, remarks. And I'm gonna selectively quote the parts that I, uh, that were sort of music to my ears, where it seems like um, prevention of harm and deterrence is very, very key in these moments of external pressure. Namely, they talk about the area of data breaches this is a kind of new risk to society, and um, they I'm gonna just quote specifically what they say, which as I said, this is sort of music to my ears. On page 194, they say, if the disclosure of private information from hacking becomes common and widespread, and there is no statutory or regulatory regime vigorously, rigorously, sorry, deterring negligent failure, to provide adequate data security by imposing severe penalties, then eventually some courts will expressly or impliedly recognize this under some circumstances. Why is that music to my ears? It's this beautiful rendition of external pressure, namely there's this risk, people are being harmed by something, tort steps in as a kind of quasi-regulator, there's no other, as they say, there's no other statutory or regulatory regime, and it does its job as it should to prevent harms because after all, we're all better off, any version of justice, whether we're going to talk about any philosopher you want to mention to me, any version of justice has to cheer hard for preventing harm or injury from individuals as opposed to worrying about cataloging them as wrongs and what do we do about them. And when John talked about we live in a world where people come up with lots of forms to mistreat each other, I would say we live in a world of a lot of socially productive, extremely risky behavior and risky conduct, products, liability, life-saving drugs, etc., and we have to have a mechanism whereby society responds to those risks, and their first response should be to try to minimize and prevent some of those harms. That's what I think is important, and I find that at least in this um, part of the book. The second um, piece of the future of tort law, so there's this first component that needs to focus on external pressures leading to preventing harm and deterrence. The second piece has to do, I think, with insurance. And um, this is what uh, they have to say in the context of data breach on page 195. They're talking about defendants here may find it in their interest to purchase substantial amounts of insurance against such liability in the same manner that major corporations now purchase hundreds of millions of dollars worth of insurance against liability for bodily injury and property damage. And um, it's led to some interesting ruminations. I say the future of tort law. I think the next book, or a really interesting project, um, is one that would harness those two components, and it would remember at previous historical junctures. So now I'm gonna end with a case you may or not may not have come to, um, Roland versus Christian, which is the story of friends who sue friends, right? Someone comes to someone's apartment, and um, is injured by um, a defective uh, faucet, but the sort of booming uh, idea that the California State Supreme Court comes down with there is it it crashes down, it completely collapses a very historical tripartite distinction between trespassers, licensees, and business invitees, People forget this, like, first of all, it's an eight-part test and they throw a bit of everything. They throw some for John's team, like it's about morality and wrongs. They throw, throw some for my team. It's about, they say, one of the factors, policy of preventing future harm. But people seem to forget they also throw in there as an affirmative factor, something to think about when the court's deciding whether to expand liability in a particular area, the availability cost and prevalence of insurance for the risk involved. And I think that merging that deterrence uh, idea with this idea of thinking about insurable risks is kind of what is not kind of, is actually what is going to be driving courts forward when they're deciding where they're going to recognize new torts or not. So thank you very much. I'll come back just on a personal note. I can't claim, uh, Ted, other than inspiration from much of your writing Uh, But Ken has been, um, uh, is kind of uh, remarkable, almost improbable, what a mentor he's been to me from afar. And to this day, um, and this is a true story, I had a student come in. um, I hadn't read their book to be about tort law is a mess. Maybe I could have um, used this. A a student came in recently to say, Professor Sharkey, is there any structure in your class? And I thought, (laughs) I don't think that was like the highest praise. But um, but where did I send this student to Ken's Forms and Function of Tort Law? I've always felt like you know um, I don't I don't have the holy grail. I don't tell students you know there is this I teach this way and then there's the secret over here. I tell them at the at the outset the secret is in Ken's Form and Function of Tort Law, so they can you know read that along with whatever it is that I'm uh, trying to do uh, in class. So it's wonderful to be here and um, thank you very much.
5: Well, uh, uh, it's great to see you all here. Let me let me begin by um, thanking Dean Goluboff for sponsoring this book panel and all of our book panels. Um, her uh, she lends her. Good offices to these events, and uh, it enriches our our lives here. Uh, thank thanks so much, Mike and uh, and John and uh, 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 Kathy. We're we're all a part of a quest, a quest to understand uh, tort law and what tort law is. Um, in our book, Ted and I try to. Push that quest further, um, so your insights and your observations are are your part in pushing the quest forward and to Leslie um, Professor Kendrick, you know there's nothing like having someone be first your student and then be your boss. <laughs> um, it's a its a, I, I can't even begin to express the how gratifying that has been. And now, a, a mere colleague for a while. Um, so, uh, um, this audience is so full of, of first-year students. Let, let me just say something about that. Um, it, it might be a little early to say this, but I have you all here and um, so I wanna say it now. You know, isn't it amazing? that a month ago, this all would have been incoherent to you. <laughs> and that you could sit here and basically follow most of what is going on. You are, you know, really, in, in, a, in an important sense, you're more like us now than you are like the people you were a month ago right you what, you're native speakers now, right, and uh, we may use we may have more vocabulary but but we we all are speaking the same language, and it, it, you know if you get discouraged in any way, you know make take note of that uh, so um let me just uh try you know in the spirit of speaking mostly to the students to just make a point about a couple of themes that I think ran through um, uh, all these remarks. Um, First of all, juries. Uh, It's true, we don't talk a lot about um, juries in this book, um, but uh, make no mistake about it, um, uh, I'll speak only for myself, but I'm sure Ted thinks this too. Uh, American tort law The the common law of torts is all about the relationship between judges and juries. It's it's only a slight exaggeration to say it's about nothing other than the relationship between judges and juries. Uh, uh, We wouldn't need as much tort law or all the rules that we have if it weren't for the fact that that, that we have Juries in uh, civil cases. Much of the law of torts could be left unsaid or at least ungoverned by rule. So, you know, you just there's a whole, the whole world that that you could write about, and you have to pick some of it when you when you write. And it's true we didn't say much about um, juries. Uh, then. Uh, the big mess. I'll tell you what we think about that issue. We think tort law is organizationally messy. We don't, I don't think we took a position in the book about whether it was normatively messy, and um, uh, uh, of course, when we were writing the passages passages that John quoted, we knew that, he and Ben Zapersky had said that tort law is a law of wrongs. We weren't forgetting that uh, or ignoring it. We, we said what we said with that um, in mind. And I think what we said was that saying that tort law is, an, is, is a law of wrong, uh, wrongs is saying something at a level of generality that doesn't deal with the organizational messiness of tort law. Uh, uh, and it, it, it wouldn't be a surprise, at least it's not a surprise to us, uh, that tort law would be messy. Maybe it's no more messy than contract law. I think you're right to call us on that. I, I wrote that passage, and I, I realized when I wrote it, that I, don't, I don't really know anything about contract law. <laughs> Just seemed like a good line at the time. Um, There's a, there's a phrase that uh, uh, you, you see in writing about, about law, which is, the common law works itself pure. I don't know, <laughs> you know. I, I'm drawn to another phrase that you see um, in writing about the common law, describing, the says, the common law, chaos with an index. <laughs> well, it's neither um it's it's organizationally messy look at a, look at any table of contents of a restatement or of a torts treatise and some of it is organized by reference to the standards of conduct intent negligence strict liability and then you get halfway through the table of contents and it stops with that organization and it moves on to something else that doesn't doesn't map on to the distinction between intent, negligence, and strict liability. That seems messy to me. Now, um, what would tort law look like if it weren't messy? It wouldn't look like tort law, right? It'd be it'd be some other thing. We're not we're not suggesting that um, it could be made unmessy. It's it's just uh, what it is. The uh, the aforementioned Immanuel Kant sorry to take his name in vain here, but he said, um, out of the crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight was ever made. Tort law is made by people. We shouldn't expect that it's gonna be completely coherent. We have somewhat incompatible values, all of which we adhere to at the same time. So what gets produced is not gonna be pure or coherent or straight at the sort of intermediate level at which we uh, wanna operate. Um, there can be grand organizing principles. Law, tort law is a law of wrongs or tort law as a law aimed at preventing harm or tort law as a mix of those two principles. But when you get down below that level, it's it's gonna be messy and not completely coherent because it's made by people and responding to things in the world that aren't always coherent themselves. Uh, And as far as uh, the future goes, insurance, well, some of you know I, I have an interest in that subject. Um, and uh, I'm all for uh, more attention being paid in the future to the relationship between uh, tort law and insurance, and I might even do some of that myself. Thank you.
6: I was going to make similar remarks about... uh, a lot of first-year law students being here, but Ken has done an eloquent job with that. But I will tell a couple of stories about Ken's and my teaching first-year torts. Um, They both involved Jim Ryan, the current president of the the university. He was on our law faculty for for many years. And and Jim didn't start off teaching torts, but for some reason he was um, asked to do it, so he was teaching for the first time. so he uh, uh, he and I used to play tennis, uh, and and at one point after a in, in the course of a match or after a match he said, you know, Ted, I I can really understand now why you teach torts, you know, the, you can get through the whole rules in about a week, <laughs> um, and and that's so, that that is a characteristic of of torts is the the rules are are. Are seemingly so pliant and so fact-specific, and so hard to erect into some kind of coherent conceptual structure, that sometimes, as a first-year student, one despairs. Um, and and th- this leads me to the to the second story. Um, Jim was telling me about his av- student evaluations after the first time he taught torts, and one evaluation said, "Well, uh, Professor Ryan's." Class was just a rehash of Professor Abraham's Forms and Functions book, <laughs> but but it wasn't all that bad. <laughs> uh, so it, if I I recommend that at some point in a in a kind of there's a kind of awkward moment um, fairly early in my classes where st- students come up to me after class and say Professor White. Uh, is is there a is there a horn book or some treatise that that you might recommend for tort law? And I, I take that to mean that he's finding my class utterly confusing and perhaps useless. Um, and so I I, I recommend uh, I recommend Ken's Forms and Functions. And and actually, for for someone who's been ascribed to being thinking of torts as messy, it's actually a very um, Good synthesis, doctrinal synthesis, in a very lucid manner, and and it, it actually tells you things that are that are there. Um, so anyway, I I m- my view of of Torts is is very much reinforced by my teaching it. Um, uh, I, I'm struck every year as I I use uh, I use the casebook that that uh, Mike Green is on and the casebook. Uh, it's now in its 11th edition, and this is the 11th edition I've taught. A- and the casebook doesn't change a whole lot, uh, but it has a lot of notes and questions, which is why I chose it initially when I came here. And Some of my colleagues don't like notes and questions, but I chose notes and questions because when I started teaching torts, I didn't know the first thing about the subject, and I thought, well, at least these people can ask some good questions of the, of, <laughs> of the students. Um, but I, I, am, I am an unpo, unapologetic uh, uh, adherent to the view that torts is largely messy. And, and l- let me give an illustration from some things that Mike Green said. Mike, Mike has the, in my judgment, unenviable task of, of, of having to do with general principles or concluding observations about the third restatement. Uh, so, and, and, he, and he gave some uh, what, what he thought were sort of enduring and, and defining principles of tort law, and he talked about factual causation, scope of liability, and, and legally cognizable harm. Um, the, if you expand legally cognizable harm to include both the idea of injury, why does tort law compensate some injuries and not others, and also damages, why is it possible to ha- be injured but not able to bring in action because you can't bring into court damages that will be recognized in one fashion or another by the tort system. Um, I, I think what those principles, as Mike puts them, principles do, is they just define the affirmative elements of the torts case. The, the, the torts case is ubiquitous, whether you're pleading in defamation or you're pleading in strict liability. You do have elements that you have to show I wouldn't call those principles. I, I would call those something like pleading requirements to bring this particular form of a civil lawsuit. And beyond that, I, I'm a little hard-pressed to say what the principles are. Now, of course, John Goldberg has a ready answer to that, which is torts are wrongs. Um, and and if, you, if you read John's work, w- what he tends to do is Sort of take everything that shows up uh, as as a civil action not arising out of contract and call it a wrong, uh, and then suggest that that in some deep fashion it's a moral wrong, and so in some even deeper fashion we need civil recourse theory to to really understand what tort law is about, and and that's fine. I mean, the, you know, that that <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm not I'm not a member of. Of John's team in that respect, but I, I, I have nothing but admiration for his, his efforts. Um, now, um, the, the last comment about I, I want to say about the, the panelists, and then I have a, a couple of other things to add. Is uh, Kathy's point about the constitutionalization of, of tort law, uh, and and how she thinks that that I'm, I'm not sure whether she's saying we haven't quite got that right or whether she's saying that, that this is just a very bad thing that we're not taking quite seriously enough. I, I think our attitude toward constitutionalization of tort law is, is fairly skeptical. Um, we, what, we, what, we're trying, what we were trying to say in that chapter is, there is, an, and we're indebted in, in some respects to Leslie, um, Leslie's work on free speech in this. We think that free speech imperialism um, is has captured the Supreme Court. That is, we think the court is roaming around looking for free speech concerns everywhere in, in American law, and, and it's largely sympathetic to the free speech concern. W- whether the free speech concern in, in, involves intentional infliction of emotional distress, or, or, or whether it involves all variety of, of expressive activities. What, what we're trying to point out is that if you think about some features of tort law, there's a lot of speech elements in tort law that are not currently recognized as protected speech. For example, uh, r- restrictions on securities transactions. Uh, the, the, if you violate the securities and exchange laws, you, you don't you don't do this against a, the backdrop of a First Amendment privilege to make misleading statements about, about securities. Um, it's also true of labels on products. Uh, products liability has a doctrine that if you, if you convey misleading information on a, pro, on a product warning, that can subject you now primarily to, to negligent liability under products liability. Well, we, we looked around at some recent cases and it looked to us as if there's this creeping First Amendment constitutionalization of these areas where conventionally, yes, there have been speech elements, but they've been typically regarded as subsumed in, in, in the common law. So I I don't I don't can't, I don't. I don't want you to think that we're hostile um, to uh, uh, skepticism about the, the the court's attempt to to venture into this. Um, at the same time, you know this is a this is an aggressive, uh, self-confident court that feels it now has majorities in a number of areas, and they may want to seek out. Um, Tort law and, and constitutionalize it further. I, I, I don't quite disagree. I don't quite agree with Kathy's view uh, about the court, sort of looking over its shoulder and finding how can we stick it to tort law. Uh, I, I don't think the, the the current majorities on the court care a whole lot about tort law one way or another. Uh, I think they feel they have bigger fish to fry. If they're gonna if they're gonna get uh, get on the First Amendment hobby horse, they're gonna they're gonna stake out a bolder path and. Than just uh, product warnings um, uh, well in it, the, the last thing I want to say is that um, Ken and I have been friends for for a long time and and uh, we started writing uh, work together. Oh before I say that I, I I forgot to say when I first started that that in my judgment, nobody gives a better introduction than Risa golubov <laughs> and I want to thank her for for the several times in which she's introduced me at events. Um, b- but but back to Ken's and my collaboration. I, I think that uh, we started this in, in 2013 when we got an invitation to participate in a symposium honoring Jeff O'Connell who taught at this law school for many years and was good friends with both of us and, and a, w- a wonderful presence in, in tort law, the, the architect, the co-architect of no fault automobile insurance. And, so anyway, we were, we were invited to the symposium, and we decided to write a piece on, on, um, on William Prosser. William Prosser, one of the great torts uh, people of the generation immediately preceding us, the uh, reporter of the Second Restatement, the leading casebook author, uh, uh, published a great many illuminating articles, uh, almost single-handedly created the tort of intentional... Infliction of emotional distress and, and privacy. Uh, anyway, so we, we decided we would do this, and and uh, and it turned out that <laughs> that we really liked it. We really liked writing together, um, and we, we substantially edit each other's work. We 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 assign portions uh, at the outset, but then when someone sends over a draft, the other person basically takes it apart, and and vice versa, and. So the joint product is pretty much honed out um, uh, between ourselves. So anyway, Ken and I did this piece and then we, then we decided to do another one. And, and I said at one point to, to Ken, I said, let's, do, let's just do one of these a year for the indefinite future. And Ken said, what? <laughs> um, uh, but we've, we've pretty much done that. And it, it's been a, just a distinct pleasure for me to have that collaboration. I look forward to many more years with it. So thank all of you for coming.